I've been thinking about inheritance lately. Both of my grandmothers are now past. My grandfather's passed before them. My uh, father's father died right after he retired. And uh, his wife, my grandmother, outlived him by 15 years. And then my other grandmother uh, outlived her husband, my grandfather on my mom's side, by 14 years. And then uh, she passed away, but she made it to 100. She just passed away. People my age don't have grandmothers uh, living. And uh, I had the privilege of having that. And uh, she always told me privately, she said, when I'm 80, I'm gonna get my hearing aids when I'm 90, I'm going to get my cane. And when I'm 100, I'm going to get my wings. <laughs> Not so sure I agree with that theology, but baby, that's how it works. I don't know. But uh, she did pass just shortly after her 100th birthday. Now, uh, just to jump to the end here, uh, there was no inheritance. People that live that long, uh, you know, they burned through everything and the family's all helping them get through it. Uh, they didn't have much anyway when she was 80. She probably couldn't afford those hearing aids or the cane. Uh, so there's no financial inheritance. But I have been thinking a little bit about inheritance when it comes to us, when it comes to Jesus. We've come through Easter as a church. We're now in that season in scripture where Jesus walked among us after rising from the dead and we're coming up on the ascension of Jesus and then Pentecost. So it makes you wonder, as Jesus ascends to heaven, what did he leave behind for us? If we were to read the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, what would be in it? And perhaps some of you, like me, perhaps some of you, are a little worried about that inheritance. Perhaps some of you wonder about what Jesus left behind. Have you noticed that the church sometimes, and I don't necessarily mean this church, but the church seems less aligned with what you might think the church should be? Maybe you're a little disenchanted, a little disappointed. I do wonder if the church is less trusted for spiritual leadership than it has been in a long time. And I definitely believe, and I imagine you'd confirm, that there is less cultural influence from the church than at any time in our living memory here. What do we do about that? Maybe you feel this yourself. Here's the hard thing. Are you disappointed in the church? Have you had a disagreement with the church? Do you feel that some people have corrupted the faith? Or maybe they've just been corrupt with the funds? <laughs> have you heard stories about famous people who can no longer be trusted, who are church leaders? Maybe you've seen abuse of informal power or formal position? Or maybe this gets right down to not just what you've seen and heard, but what you've experienced. Have you had a mistreatment? Have you been hurt? Have you been cast out? Have you been abused? Has someone who was supposed to represent God hurt you? I think it's appropriate for us to call a time out and say, 
I'm sorry. We're, right? We're sorry. For all who've experienced that pain, and these are just words here that I'm saying, but let's start with the words and then we'll get at the actions in a moment. We need to say we're sorry if you have been hurt by the church or by those who lead some church somewhere. Maybe it started with that brokenness and maybe it was a sort of a hidden resentment. Even some of you may have suppressed it for a long time and it just came rushing back at some moment for you. We love you and we must do better. Then there's the rest of us who maybe haven't experienced that. Maybe you've been blessed by all of the leaders that you followed being really upstanding people. You follow people like Pastor Steve who have proven themselves to be able to be trusted. Perhaps you haven't had to run into this, but I bet, I bet, I bet you hear about it. I bet you worry about it. I bet you're concerned about the next generation and whether or not they trust the church. Not just because of what they've experienced, but because of what the culture thinks of us. I think you're probably right to be concerned. I think for those of you that think a crisis may be looming, the bad news is, maybe. You see, I think that the pandemic was an accelerant on the flames of disengagement that was already present in us, right? The political conflicts among us you know, they were kerosene on us. It wasn't about the election cycle. It was we were already smoldering ashes of political disagreements. The racial tensions were just like hot coals in the church under the pews and they just kind of blew on them, making them come aflame. And then there's the generational shifts. I was stunned recently by some statistics. We might show it here on the screen. The teen's perspective of Jesus Christ has radically shifted. So these are teenagers who say they identify as Christians. What we find is that, you see it there, 61% of teen Christians say that Jesus was crucified. So that means 39% of Christian teens say Jesus was not crucified. And half don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Again, these are not all Christians. These, these are not all teenagers. These are just Christian teenagers. And just 32% believe that Jesus is not active today. Does this concern you? Does this make you think, first of all, why do they say they're Christian? Because this is the core stuff, right? That Jesus died and rose again and is alive. This is why you said he is risen about 400 times a couple Sundays ago. It's because he is alive and active today. So what do we do about all this? Some of you are like, Dave, we didn't really bring you in here for all this gloom and doom. <laughs> what do we do? Well, I think we need to talk about the inheritance. So let's say... Jesus was related to us by blood. 
We were all related to Jesus and he passed away. And let's say there was a last will and testament that I got to read in front of you. And it was just us here in the room. What questions would you have? Some of you have actually had an inheritance where you ask these kind of questions. The first question that you don't say out loud, but you're thinking in your head is how big is it? Especially if there's this many relatives. <laughs> how are we going to divide that among this many people? How big is the inheritance? What's the scale? How big are those checks going to be? Next you ask, who gets what? This is the question you might ask, which is, am I in the will, right? Is my name listed in the will? And then third, what is it for? What is the purpose of that will, what, what is the purpose of what was left behind for me? This sometimes happens when people inherit something. There's sort of strings attached, right? I, I, it's one of my quirky hobbies, but I keep bonsai trees. And one of the things about bonsai trees is they just like last forever. There's, you know, you're supposed to keep them like hundreds of years. So I've been thinking, literally, I'm not close to death or anything, I hope. But I've been thinking, who's going to take care of these trees when I'm dead? I've been trying to like secretly get one of my kids excited about it. Not working at all. Like, what am I going to do with these trees? If any of you want them, tell me. I'll put you in my will. But uh, there's not going to be much else, but there will be a few trees. Um, so what are you supposed to do? What are the strings attached? So if you haven't yet, you could turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to go to Matthew 16. We're going to pop over to First Peter, and then we're going to come back to Matthew chapter 28. But if you want to go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 20, I just want to point out a couple things that happen here. First of all, I looked up a few of the biggest inheritance because we're first asking, how big is it, right? And I, I looked it up, and one of the biggest inheritances ever, as you might imagine, was Sam Walton, right? He opened a little shop you might know of. And when Sam Walton passed away, he left to those that inherited it $190 billion dollars. That's a will you didn't want to be left out of. All of us left out of that. Sorry. $190 billion. And one of the other ones that I found, I've never heard of this, but it's the Ambani family in India. And they actually, uh, it was, it was a small inheritance compared to the Walton. It was only 43 billion. So it was rough for them. Um, and, and they ended up, it's funny, one of the sons, one son went on to run the company, the other one just spent the money, and he built a house that's 27 stories tall. It's the largest private residence in the world, that house. But I have a claim here. I believe our inheritance is bigger than even those. It's huge. Cattle on a thousand hills kind of huge. How many stories is the mansion we're going to move into some days, guys? In verse 15 of chapter 16, it says, but what about you? Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter says, you are the Messiah, son of the living God. Back down into chapter, uh, verse 18, he responds to this key truth saying, on this rock, I will build my church. This is the key moment where Jesus brings the word church into their vernacular, okay? On this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And then he says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom, whatever you bind on earth, or some of your translations say, whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And then it says in mine, and whatever you uh, loose on earth will be loose in heaven. Some of you have permit, will be permitted 
in heaven. So there's good news and bad news on the will. The good news is what Jesus gave us is us, the church. That's the good news, okay? You look next to you, left and right, that's your inheritance. Sorry to break it to you, that's also the bad news. <laughs> Jesus left us, us. And it's kinda like when somebody says, you know, all you have is family. And you're like, my family's really dysfunctional. <laughs> like, when you say that, it means I don't have much. I'd maybe rather have nothing. <laughs> Guess what? The church can be dysfunctional. Have you lived long enough to see that? <laughs> there can be dysfunction in the church. If you think of our whole family, just think of this whole group. Well, I mean, you're, you're better than most, right? <laughs> but think of all the dysfunction in this room alone. <laughs> don't look at anyone directly in the eyes right now. Don't, don't do like my mom did and nudge in the pew. <laughs> Think of all the dysfunction you have. And you, my friends, are the church. But there's a couple things that Jesus didn't leave. So when you hear Jesus left the church that can bind and loose, that could forget, for, forbid or permit... What I'm not saying is he's not like it's he left some big hierarchy, some institutional thing with laborious rules and regulations that are arcane for you. It's not like Jesus left behind the Christian version of the Bureau of Motor Vehicles, right? That's not what it is. It's also not uh, some loose network of relationships. The church is not like a hippie commune where we come together and have no commitments to one another. No, there is commitment. There is covenant. There is a sense of uh, deeply committed discipline. There is a sense of this, love this phrase, of mutual voluntary submission. I love, like when those three words go together. It's mutual. It's not one direction. It's voluntary. Nobody can make you do it but it is submission. It's a choice to say, I'm gonna to submit to this group of people or to this other person, and they're going to submit to me. Remember, in scripture, it said, submit to one another. <laughs> so Jesus left us with a, a huge inheritance, and in fact, it's, it's power, it's authority. Jesus left us with a church that has power, that can decide things that have eternal consequences, not just earthly consequences. That's why he says, bind on earth, it's bound in heaven. Loose on earth, loose in heaven. Does that make you a little worried? <laughs> like, part of me wants to say to Jesus, a little confession here. Is that really what you wanted to do, Jesus? You really wanted to trust us with that much authority? That's unwieldy. That can be misused. Is that the right call, Jesus? Of course, it's the right call. <laughs> it's Jesus. <laughs> but I have to confess that it makes me worried. 
So why did Jesus do this? Why would Jesus leave this much power and authority? And first of all, let me be clear on what the church is. The church is the community called into existence by the Father. And it's centered on, this is why this passage is so important in Matthew 16, it's centered on the life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and he is risenness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it is empowered by the Holy Spirit in all of us. So when I say we distrust the church, that's a problem. But the key is that we don't trust people ultimately. Who do we trust? We trust the Father. We trust the Son. We trust the Holy Spirit in one another. And we discern whether or not that spirit is evident in the kind of decisions that are being made. That is what the church is, in case you wondered. That's the church. So we can trust the spirit even when we start to lose trust with one another. Here's an interesting thought exercise. What could Jesus have left instead of the church? Or maybe with the church? Or maybe more important than the church? Have you noticed that Jesus didn't write an autobiography? Wouldn't that have been great? That would have been a bestseller. He could have, smartest guy ever. (laughs) He could have written an autobiography. Look how great the Bible is already. Why didn't he write it? (laughs) He didn't. Why didn't he leave a creed to us? That had to be developed later to summarize what we believe. But why didn't Jesus just do it? Why didn't he say, okay, here's like, you know, 25 lines, and if you believe this stuff, you're gold. He didn't do that. Why didn't he leave a system of thought, a philosophy? Why didn't he believe a, leave a physical space? This physical space is beautiful. I just talk about the aesthetics of it. But this isn't what Jesus left us. He didn't leave a fort. He didn't leave a castle. He didn't leave a monument. He didn't leave a palace. He didn't leave behind any of that stuff. There's no temple or monastery or cathedral that he built. He didn't allow somebody to make an icon that actually looks like him. We made up this stuff. (laughs) We don't know what he looks like. He didn't leave behind symbols. He didn't even like draw a cool little diagram that would make us all be so excited like some of us love Enneagram. (laughs) Some of you are just now learning Jesus didn't come up with Enneagram. Okay, FYI, didn't. Okay, there's no diagram to follow. No, he left behind the church, the community. It's what Leslie Newbigin called the only hermeneutic of the gospel. And what that means is the good news is interpreted by us. The church is tasked with saying, this is the good news, and it only becomes good news when we bring it to people in the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit. He didn't leave behind just any kind of community either. So there's a bunch of communities that existed at the time of Jesus. And sometimes people try to make the church these kind of communities. And I think it's helpful to remember Jesus could have done that and he didn't. So for instance, he didn't make the church a kind of separatist sect that goes off by itself and tries to get away from the world because you world. Well, that was the Essenes. He didn't do that. Instead, it was, no, we're going to be a public 
witness to the world. We're going to be right in the middle of everything. This is where Jesus went with it. This is where, this is where Paul went with it. This is where Peter went with it. It's in the public square. It also was not some kind of very exclusive club of people who followed the rules really well. Because that existed at Jesus' time. It's the Pharisees. You may have heard of them. Jesus didn't do that. In fact, he argued with these guys the most. It's also not some elaborate, beautiful, philosophical, political way of thinking. That existed at Jesus' time too. It's called the Sadducees. They're the smart people that had all kinds of power in the government. It's not that either. So what Jesus left was a different kind of community. A community that sometimes I wonder, you know what, if this community is enough for Jesus, why isn't it enough for me? Why do I try to make it these other things? So maybe you're worried, like I mentioned before, about the abuse of this power that we see given to us in Matthew 16. There's a phrase, it's Latin. So all you're going to learn Latin for a moment. Does that sound good? Semper reformanda. Everybody say that. Semper reformanda. Okay, some of you are Marines, and this is the first time you've used Latin in any other context. Semper reformanda. It means, some of you are already kind of clued in by the word reform, right? Reformanda. It's always reforming. This is a phrase that's been used throughout church history to say that what the church needs to do is always be about the task of reforming itself. So how do we do that? Well, here's a little bit of insider baseball. Steve Deneff and a few people from this church are gonna join a meeting next week in St. Louis. It's a bunch of different Wesleyan people from all around our country and Canada who are getting together to decide things. They're gonna bind and loose stuff, okay? Whether they know that or not, that's what they're doing. And when they do that, I, it just reminds me of kind of, if, if you don't know that, you're not just a part of this church family. Even if you're first time here, you've kind of, now you've come to like somebody's Thanksgiving dinner for the first time. That's always a little awkward first time, right? But you're at our table. You're welcome. You're now part of family. You're part of a bigger family of people all over the place. And that bigger family is called Wesleyan. It's on the church building. So you kind of maybe had a hint there. We Wesleyans do a few things to make sure, because here, here's the reality. Yes, I'm, I'm at, at times surprised when people misuse power, right? Disappoint you. Maybe there's some of you who are younger that have just started to encounter this and you kind of have your first disenchantment. Maybe there's some of you that are middle-aged and you, you're tired, because I am. I mean, anybody here middle-aged and tired? Okay. Uh, and, and you're just weary of yet another one. Or maybe some of you have been around the block for decades. And maybe you feel even a little forgotten and marginalized. And maybe you look at yet another person, maybe even a friend, maybe even somebody you've trusted for decades, and now you're not really thinking you can trust them anymore. We get surprised by these moments of distrust. But here's the way I've started to think about it. I started to experience the joy 
and the surprise when somebody doesn't misuse their power. I've started to say, oh my goodness, look at how long Steve has been here. <laughs> Think of all of the informal power Steve Deneff has, right? When he gets up here and preaches, it's an intimidating thing for me and other people that come in here and fill in for him, right? Because that was, there was that moment a minute ago where you were like, we have a guest preacher today. And none of you said it on your faces, but I could feel it in my spirit. <laughs> And that's why he's down here on the front row. Steve's the only guy I've ever seen that stretches like he's in the Olympics before he preaches, right? He gets down here, stretching those legs out so he can come up here. And when he gets to a really good point, he goes what? He goes down like this, right? That's power, right? And what I've started to do is to say, what a joyful thing that I've not once in all the years I've seen Steve, the years I've been, I've seen him at low moments, hard moments, I've never once seen him abuse his power. Now that's not because I have trust in Steve, but I do trust Steve. Who do I trust? That's because the Holy Spirit is working in him to keep him faithful. Guess what? Everything I just said doesn't mean he won't misuse it next week. Right? Right? So we trust, but we are more surprised maybe that somebody doesn't misuse it. And more importantly, and here's the meat of it, we need to have systems in place to make sure people don't misuse their power as much as possible. We as Wesleyans have made a few choices this way. When all those people go and bind and loose in St. Louis next week, half of them will be lay people. Half of them will be non-clergy. There is a sense in which people who are ordained and get to do things like I'm doing now and serve communion and lead boards for a church, we accrue quite a bit of power in our lives. And what we've decided is that when we're getting together in a room to bind and loose, we want to make sure half of those people are not clergy because we could end up with a sense of all the clergy just running everything and running all over y'all. The other thing that happens is women are clergy. We've decided this for a lot of theological and biblical reasons, but the other important thing is, so you don't have male clergy running over everybody. This is a problem that I think has been around forever, but it's a particular problem in the last few years we've been talking about this more. And I love that we have women at the table, so it's not a good old boys club. Well, there are some good old boys clubs, they tend to congregate, but it's not only a good old boys club that's running things. We have middle judicatories. You're like, Dave, you already taught me Latin. How did you say judicatories? But here's what that is. That's a mid-level management, <laughs> if you're thinking about your workplace. There is a mid-level management in our tribe. And what that means is it's not just people off on some international headquarters, and it's not just you here locally. If things go south in this church, guess what? There's somebody who shows up <laughs> that lives not far away. That's how it's structured, to make sure that we are keeping the church accountable. Because yes, we trust leaders, but we don't trust in them. And instead, we want to have structures and bind and loose in a way that we keep things accountable. So let's organize the church in that way. If you've still got your Bible open or you have an app open, head over to 1 Peter if you'd like. In 1 Peter, it says, you know, you might wonder with me, we're given the church... And Jesus says, I will build my church on this rock. 
But you might say, well, what does he build it out of? Well, it says it here in 1 Peter chapter 2. He talks about, remember the question, who was named in the inheritance? It says, you are like living stones in verse 5. You're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Eugene Peterson translated this beautifully. He said, present yourself as building stones for the construction of a sanctuary vibrant with life. You'll serve as holy priests offering Christ-approved lives up to God. What he gives us is a responsibility to embrace. A little secret. We need to stop converting people and start recruiting people. Do you hear me? We need to stop converting people or convincing them to come to a place and hopefully worship. And we need to rethink that to say, no, what we're actually doing when we share our faith with somebody is we're inviting them in to a holy priesthood. We are recruiting them to be like us and to hold this great authority. Now, some of you are like a little freaked out by that. You're a little freaked out by first, or Second Peter saying this, that you are a holy priesthood. Let's practice, okay? Just look at the person next to you and say, you are a priest. Do it now. You are a priest. Yeah, go to the other person on the other side. You're a priest. You're a priest. You're a priest. Okay, now look at those same people and say back to them, yeah, I know, I'm a priest. I know, I'm a priest. Did you know? I'm a priest. Yeah, I'm a priest. Some of you are like, man, my business cards are going to be a whole lot more impressive now. <laughs> That's what Peter's saying to us. That the old system where some person is going to do all of the interaction with the God and then mediate for us, that system has now been replaced with a system where we are all a part of a holy priesthood and then there are people who are, who are part of the equippers in Ephesians 4 language, if you want to study that more, that equip all y'all. So all of us are the ones that could come to the altar. And there's no mediator between God and man. So whether you like it or not, even though it felt like you were joking a little bit, you're priests. I'm a priest. And every person you meet that you are talking to about Jesus, you are potentially handing them the keys to the kingdom as soon as they believe. Isn't that wild? That Holy Spirit rushes into their life and they will have the same power that any other Christian that has ever lived has in them. Doesn't matter whether, whether they're a peasant or the Pope. And that's what's in you. And the problem is not that when we share Christ with people that they don't know this. Of course they don't know this. I accepted Christ in this church in front of that cross in the last building that we had. That some of you are like, praise the Lord, we're not in that building anymore, some of you old timers. When I did that in 1980, did I know I was a priest? No. So it's not like you know it right away. Some of you that are really, really freaked out right now and are like, is this a cult? Uh, 
wait around a couple years. It's okay. You'll, you'll get, get around to this and listen to Steve. But the rest of you, the problem is not that they don't know it. The problem is that we don't know it, that we don't embrace our role, our role to be active, to participate, to love, to lead, to bear witness that anyone anywhere can join us in being part of the holy priesthood. That's what 2 Peter says. Okay, last spot here, Matthew 28. So we've already talked about how big is the inheritance. It's big, it's huge, it's an authority to steward. We talked about who's in the will, right? Which one of us are the recipients of the inheritance? All of us, all of you, me, everyone we ever share Christ with has the potential to join that. And then now we gotta say, well, what are the strings attached? What's the purpose? In Matthew 28, 16 through 20, you heard it read earlier, but the key phrase is here. Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. This is a mission to pursue. Notice, it doesn't say all authority was given me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, my disciples and y'all, what I want you to do is come and sit in buildings. Maybe stand, if you're really kind of into it, go like this. Is that what he said? No, he said, go and make disciples. Go everywhere. He says, all ethnos, all nations. Have you been thinking about that, by the way? Do you regularly think about it? Do you regularly pray for people who have gone to the nations? Are you giving to people that are doing that? Have you even thought about going? I just want to say, every once in a while, you got to pray, Lord, are you sending me? Or maybe, particularly if you're a younger person, you know that there's these internships now that you can go on to actually go find out what that life is like. You're not committing to you know, put all of your belongings in a coffin and move to China or something. You get to actually go on an internship and say, okay, is this what this is for, for me? Or maybe you're, you're, you're somebody where your work might be actually a way for you to serve. The global economy is on the move. Is the church too? Could your job be the way that you serve somewhere else? I love the way that J.D. Greer says it. He says, God made you good at something. Do it well for the glory of God, but do it somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Amen? So maybe that's what God might be calling you to do. But we don't just go, we make disciples. Disciples who become baptized and are taught everything Jesus commanded us. This is the strings attached. The string attached is that he gives us this authority not to sort of be excited about exerting the authority among one another, but no, to go with a mission. So what the will of Jesus tells us is to go and make disciples. Disciples. 